Hi, everybody. Welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and today I'll be talking about who there should be a gay biopic about. We have Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocket Man. There is also an upcoming biopic about Rock Hudson from Ryan Murphy in the works, but there are also a lot more gay archetypes that need recognition. I think that there are compelling stories to tell about key moments in the lives of LGBT people who made cultural contributions, and they have made a strong impact whether current pop culture is consciously aware or not. It wasn't just James Whale and George Cukor in Gods and Monsters, although fantastic. Uh, also, John Ford was somewhat outed by Maureen O'Hara, who claimed to witness Mr. Ford in a romantic clinch with another man while they were, as they say, making out. But that's another story, because they were strictly behind the scenes as we know of them. We do know of the E! True Hollywood stories and a good number of stage plays and documentary films that chronicle the lives and key aspects of the lives of many gay people in history. But there are also a few who are worthy of exploration and some somewhat disturbing. We all know about Robert Reed and Dick Sargent by a good number of accounts, both of them. Robert Reed and Dick Sargent were very kind men, and Dick Sargent came out and was an exemplary and forceful member of the LGBT community until his untimely passing. But they were not gay archetypes or stereotypes. I'm kind of preoccupied with the funny guys. Gore Vidal, Truman Capote, and Charles Nelson Reilly were all iconic, out, and coincidentally, good friends with Johnny Carson. But Charles was a riot. I tend to think that Vidal was more impressed with his own genius than anyone else. Truman Capote was a wild child and would be a howl to portray, even though he had a terrible substance abuse problem. I actually saw him during his live appearance on the Stanley Siegel show, where he was incredibly intoxicated, something a few gay rock stars would also know about. And they were quite witty, but Charles Nelson Reilly was a rip. He was funny. He was pleasant, and he was on television all the time. And Charles was one of those guys. You always knew he was gay, and we loved him. Like Rip Taylor. In 2005, Taylor appeared as the Grand Marshal of the Washington, D.C. Capitol Pride Parade, except that when Taylor had been referred to as openly gay in a 2009 interview for Ask the Flying Monkey, Brett Hardinger recalled receiving an email from Taylor stating, You don't know me to summarize I am openly gay. I don't know you're not an open heroin user. You see how that works? Think before you write. It turns out Taylor was married for a number of years to Las Vegas showgirl Rusty Rowe, who he divorced in the early 1960s. Taylor was a close personal friend of entertainer Liberace, somebody else who also had a biopic, spent time with him, and knew him well. Taylor cut the ribbon at the Las Vegas estate auction of Liberace's belongings and personal effects in 1988. At the time of Taylor's death, he had been in a long-term relationship with Robert Fortney. But there are other people. Werner Klemperer, Colonel Klink, whose father, Otto Klemperer, was an enormously well-regarded symphony conductor, and Werner was quite cultured, and as I understand, he was a very lovely man. Jack Larson, 
who the world knew as Jimmy Olsen from the original Superman TV show. A very well-regarded librettist in later life was the partner of acclaimed film director James Bridges, who directed, among other films, The China Syndrome and Urban Cowboy. And prior to that, Jack was the companion of Montgomery Clift, who will probably also get a biopic, like Rock Hudson. But there are other gay men, people like Edward Everett Horton, originally from Brooklyn. The Wikipedia entry says Horton never publicly discussed his private life. Horton starred in many comedy features in the 1930s, usually playing a mousy fellow who put up with domestic or professional problems to a certain point and then finally asserted himself for a happy ending. He is best known, however, for his work as a character actor in supporting roles. He remains, however, best known to the baby boomer generation as the venerable narrator of fractured fairy tales in the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. In 1965, he played the medicine man Roaring Chicken in the ABC sitcom F Troop. He echoed this role, portraying Chief Screaming Chicken on ABC's Batman as a pawn to Vincent Price's Egghead in the villain's attempt to take control of Gotham City. And if you go by Scotty Bauer's bio full service, Vincent was at the very least sexually fluid. I was in the audience for the screening of Scotty's documentary at IFC in the village with the Q&A session, and he plainly spoke of Vincent going with him and Maggie Smith going with Vincent's wife on their wedding night. Scotty also spoke of Walter Pigeon being very generous, Charles Lawton being very generous, and the filmmaker, along with Scotty, mockingly referred to Merv Griffin and said Merv would never acknowledge his sexuality. Uh, other than uh, describing them as crazy times. Now, not being gay, per se, as far as I know, but being gay archetypes or stereotypes, Sidney Greenstreet and Peter Lorre and the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca. In the Maltese Falcon, there is quite a distinct gay subtext. Uh, although, as uh, Senior Ferrara and Casablanca, uh, Sidney Greenstreet has no apparent relationship to uh, Peter Laurie's character or Ugarte, but there is a subtle gay subtext between Rick Blaine, Harvey Bogart, and Peter Laurie's character, Ugarte. Uh, Mr. Greenstreet was married to a woman, and Mr. Laurie was a well-known bacchanalian who loved wine, women, and song. And as the joke goes, if wine, women, and song become too much for you, give up singing. These archetypes or stereotypes, however, have been deeply instilled into the grain of our collective culture and have been copied, diluted, amplified, and disseminated for a very long time. I'm sure that there were a good few cowpokes that have appeared on the silver screen that we weren't consciously aware of that were also gay, and they weren't necessarily funny. But there were other guys who left indelible impressions on the culture. Franklin Pangborn. Pangborn was born in Newark, New Jersey. In the early 1930s, Pangborn worked in short subjects for Max Sennett, Hal Roach, Universal Pictures, Columbia Pictures, and Pathé Exchange, almost always in support of the leading players. For example, he played a befuddled photographer opposite Spanky McFarlane in the Our Gang short subject, Wild Poses. He also appeared in scores of feature films with small roles, cameos, and recurring gags. Pangborn played essentially the same character, prissy, polite, elegant, highly energetic, often officious, fastidious, 
somewhat nervous, prone to becoming flustered, but essentially upbeat and with immediately recognizable high-speed patter-type speech. He typically played an officious desk clerk in a hotel, a self-important musician, a fastidious head waiter, an enthusiastic bird watcher, and the like, and was usually put in a situation of frustration or flustered by the antics of others. Pangborn's screen character often was described as a gay stereotype, although such a topic was too sensitive in his day to be discussed overtly in dialogue. Pangborn was an effective foil for many major comedians, including W.C. Fields, Harold Lloyd, Olsen and Johnson, and the Ritz Brothers. He appeared regularly in comedies, including several directed by Preston Sturges. Pangborn was briefly announcer on Jack Parr's The Tonight Show in 1957, but was fired after the first few weeks for a lack of spontaneous enthusiasm and replaced by Hugh Downs. Pangborn lived in Laguna Beach, California, in a house with his mother and his occasional boyfriend, according to William Mann. He died in 1958. Paul Lind, the center square. There's so much to say about Paul Lind. I have read a very unflattering bio of Paul Lind called The Center Square, but there are other books by friends of his who are much closer to him that give much more sensitive and considerate telling of his life story. But Paul seemed to be a very conflicted man. His problem was that he had a terrible self-image about his own weight and uh, he had a drinking problem for many years, which he apparently recovered from. His private life and sexual orientation were not directly acknowledged or discussed on television or in any other media during his lifetime. According to an essay on the website for the Biography Channel, in the 1970s, entertainment journalists did not investigate the private lives of performers who were best known as game show regulars. In 1976, a People magazine article on Lind included text about Stan Feinsmith, who was described as Paul Lind's sweet mate and chauffeur bodyguard. The magazine did not include a photograph of Feinsmith. During Lind's lifetime, this was as close as the media came to hinting at his homosexuality. Kathy Rudolph, a friend of Lind's who published a 2013 book entitled Paul Lind, a biography, his life, his love, and his laughter, stated in a 2018 interview that being gay and having to hide it frustrated him. Paul Lind struggled with alcoholism and had numerous run-ins with the law, including frequent arrests for public intoxication. Peter Marshall and Kay Ballard confirmed that Lind, when inebriated, would sometimes ridicule his friends. In July 1965, Lind was involved in an incident in which a friend, another young actor, accidentally fell to his death from the window of their hotel room in San Francisco's Sir Francis Drake Hotel. The two had been drinking for hours before 24-year-old James Bing Davidson, as he was horsing around, slipped and fell eight stories. In October 1977, Lynn was involved in an incident at his alma mater, Northwestern University, where he was the Grand Marshal for homecoming. At a fast food restaurant after the homecoming parade, he made racist remarks and gestures at African-American Northwestern University professor James Pitts. Lynn later blamed his behavior on fatigue and inebriation. In January 1978, while in Salt Lake City to record a segment for Donnie and Marie, Lynn was arrested outside of a tavern and charged with interfering a police officer. Lynn's vehicle had been broken into and his valuables stolen while he was inside the tavern. The arresting officer had been investigating a, a different car burglary and claimed Lynn kept on insisting that he attend to Lynn's complaint instead. The complaint was later dropped. Determined to get his life back on track, Lynn became sober and drug-free in early 1980. Now, here's another guy I think it would be an interesting story to tell. 
His name was Hayden Rourke, another guy originally from Brooklyn. You may not recognize his name, but you know who he is. He was out loud and proud way before it was ever in vogue. Rourke was best known for his role as Dr. Bellows, the NASA medical officer in the television sitcom I Dream of Jeannie. Bellows was constantly trying to figure out why Tony Nelson, Larry Hagman, an astronaut under Bellows' supervision, often behaves strangely and to decipher the madcap antics, but he never figures out what is actually going on. Bellows usually winds up making himself look like a fool in front of his own superiors. Rourke's I Dream of Genie co-star Barbara Eden described him as a prince who was a good friend to all and always managed to keep up the spirits of the genie cast, even in difficult circumstances. Eden also wrote in her 2011 biography, Genie Out of the Bottle, that he was, quote, unashamedly gay, unquote. She commented that Rourke and his partner, director Justice Addis of Mr. Ed, among others, lived together for many years in Studio City, along with their menagerie of dogs, until his death in 1987. The couple would often invite the cast over for parties. I think that's kind of great. William Haynes, Charles William Billy Haynes, known professionally as William Haynes, was an American film actor and interior designer. By the end of the 1920s, Haynes had appeared in a string of successful films and was a popular box office draw. Now this is where it gets interesting. Haynes' acting career was cut short in the 1930s due to his refusal to deny his homosexuality. He quit acting in 1935 and started a successful interior design business with his life partner, Jimmy Shields, and was supported by friends in Hollywood. The 1930 Quigley Poll, a survey of film exhibitors, listed Haynes as the top box office attraction in the country. In 1933, Haynes was arrested in a YMCA with a sailor he had picked up in Los Angeles' Pershing Square. Louis Mayer, the studio head at MGM, delivered an ultimatum to Haynes. Choose between a sham lavender marriage or his relationship with Shields. Haynes chose Shields, and they remained together for 47 years. Mayer subsequently fired Haynes and terminated his contract. He made a few minor films at Poverty Row Studios, then retired from acting. Haynes and Shields began a successful dual career as interior designers and antique dealers. Among their early clients were friends such as Joan Crawford, Gloria Swanson, Carol Lombard, Marion Davies, and George Cukor. Their lives were disrupted in June 1936 when about 100 members of a white supremacist group dragged the two men from their El Porto Manhattan Beach home and beat them because a neighbor had accused the two of propositioning his son. The incident was widely reported at the time, but Manhattan Beach police never brought charges against the couple's attackers. The child molestation accusations against Haynes and Shields were unfounded and the case was dismissed due to a lack of evidence. William Haynes Designs remains in operation with main offices in West Hollywood and showrooms in New York, Denver, and Dallas. Will Gear, who many of us know as Grandpa Walton from the television series Waltons, was involved with Harry Hay, who was a radical activist, a communist, Founder of the uh, co-founder of the Mattachine Society and Radical Fairies, Harry Hay also refused to denounce Nambla and uh, was a, a, a rabble rouser and uh, uh, problematic for very many people. But he was involved for uh, some time with Will Gear, and Will Gear 
uh, wound up marrying a woman and fathering three children. But Will was a uh, also a communist activist, became good friends with Woody Guthrie, introduced Woody Guthrie to Pete Seeger, and uh, was blacklisted for very many years. When he died, after completing the sixth season of The Waltons, the death of his character was written into the show's script. Now, the one guy I would think would be more interesting than anybody else to do a biopic about would be Monty Woolley. Edgar Montillion Monty Woolley was an American actor. At the age of 50, he achieved a measure of stardom for his best-known role in the 1939 stage play, The Man Who Came to Dinner, and its 1942 film adaptation. His distinctive white beard was a trademark, and he was affectionately known as The Beard. Willie received a bachelor's degree at Yale University, where Cole Porter was an intimate friend and classmate, and master's degrees from Yale and Harvard universities. He eventually became an assistant professor of English and drama coach at Yale. Thornton Wilder and Stephen Vincent Benet were among his students. He served in World War I in the United States Army as a first lieutenant assigned to the general staff in Paris. Willie began directing on Broadway in 1929 and began acting there in 1936 after leaving his academic career. In 1939, he starred in the Kaufman and Hart comedy, The Man Who Came to Dinner, for 783 performances. His most famous role, a reprise of his Broadway role in 1942's The Man Who Came to Dinner, in which he plays a cranky radio wag restricted to a wheelchair because of a seemingly injured hip, a caricature of the legendary pundit Alexander Walcott. Willie and Cole Porter enjoyed many adventures together in New York and on foreign travels, although Porter reportedly disapproved of Willie taking a black man as a lover. Willie has been described as scholarly and other works as gay and closeted. Starting in 1939, Willie was living with companion Carrie Abbott, who had also graduated from Yale in 1911. Abbott was discreetly identified publicly as Willie's courier, secretary, traveling companion. The thing about Monty Woolley, on top of everything else, is that he refused to deny his relationship with a black man, and he couldn't appear in public with him without being ostracized by his gay friends, because he couldn't explain the man. The man didn't have money. He didn't have social standing. He was just someone that Monty Woolley was in love with, and he lost a lot of friends because of that. So there have been a lot of gay people who have made significant contributions to culture for a very long time, and perhaps we should be made aware of and acknowledge what they represented, whether we agree with them or not. Something to think about. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out. Mm -hmm.